those of you who knew of and prayed for our son Caleb, uh, who was in a serious uh, car accident this past week. We praise the Lord for sparing his life, and, and he's home and healing. So we thank you for your prayers, and you can continue to pray for his body and his soul as we, uh, we just pray for the Lord to be at work in his heart. Concluding our All for Christ series, and today we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 16, and uh, we had called this message Witness. I've changed that up slightly to call it Kingdom Expansion, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. Before we dive into that, I want to introduce you to something that we are calling the WBC Family Commitment. It has been an interesting few years here at Wallenstein. And one of the questions we have as elders of this church is who is Wallenstein and who is part of the WBC family? Uh, In the last few years, we've seen the passing of our our beloved pastor, Ron. Um, And then soon after that, we found ourselves in the COVID pandemic, which led, of course, to a, a lot of changing of churches, uh, people who uh, stopped going to church, people who switched churches. We've seen some leave here and some come. And then uh, thirdly, in light of all of those things, is that we, we seem to have a lack of clarity around our membership policy and practice. And so that is why we've created something called the WBC Family Commitment. It is something that the elders have worked hard on. And uh, recently we have presented to our deacons team and our Thrive teams, our our leadership teams here, and gotten feedback from them. So we would like to very soon uh, make this known to all of you. I just want to show you a couple of the statements that we uh, wrote into this document in the preamble. A local church is meant to be an expression of the universal body of Christ made up of specific believers in a specific location. A local church's health is dependent on the deep mutual commitment and connection that its people have with Christ and with each other. And local churches are right to invite their people into this high degree of commitment and connectedness. The WBC family commitment is made up of 12 statements that we ask people to affirm in order to make their connection to WBC official. The WBC family commitment provides a biblical vision of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be the church. And we want to emphasize that, that this family commitment is simply a document, uh, and you'll find lots of scripture references, uh, in which we are calling all of us as a church to follow Christ and obey God's word. That's really what it is. And by affirming these things, Uh, We're having the chance to create a real sense of unity here in this church family. So let me show you a couple of the examples. I'm not going to show you all 12, uh, because actually some of these may end up still being tweaked. But number three of the 12 is I commit to growing in my faith and in Christ-likeness through the transforming work of God as I learn God's word and apply it to my life by faith. And then number six, I commit to serving at WBC in the gifting and strength of the Holy Spirit so that as a church, we will be helping people find and follow Jesus. 
So the WBC family commitment, soon to come. In fact, this week, we are going to roll out a draft version of this to everyone who currently is a member, who has gone through the former previous membership process here at Wallenstein. We'd like to honor you uh, by having uh, you look at this document, review this document, and share with the elders any questions or concerns you may have about it. So if you are officially a member here at Wallenstein, you're going to get the opportunity to see that, I think even this week. So what do we hope will be accomplished through the WBC family commitment? As I've said, this document simply establishes a biblical vision. This is not a list of 12 Wallenstein rules that you're gonna to have to keep in order to be part of this church. Uh, it's, it's 12 biblical concepts that scripture and Christ call us to do and to obey. So it invites a commitment to the vision. To be a healthy church, those who attend and are part of that church family have to be committed to it. And the church itself needs to know who's part of its family and has to be committed to uh, to its family in return. So this uh, creates that commitment. It establishes unity around this vision. It clarifies our beliefs, which is really important in our day and age, where a number of things that we hold to as followers of Jesus, gender, sexuality, marriage, uh, the uh, sanctity of life, these are all things that are very much under attack in our culture. And so this is an opportunity for us to clarify our beliefs. This is what we believe as a church. It clarifies who the church family is, who's in and who is, who's choosing not to be in. And then finally, it provides accountability, which is a crucial aspect of church life according to the New Testament. Uh, so we just wanted to make you aware of this. You didn't realize it, but these last two months of our All for Christ series, we've actually been preaching through the WBC family commitment. And when you get it in your hands, uh, most of you probably in um, January, you'll be able to see that that's the case, that we've actually been teaching through many of the concepts uh, that have been found there for that for now. It's going to go out to those who are official church members, and you'll have the opportunity, as I said, to uh, comment or ask questions of the elders. So we look forward to what the Lord will do through the WBC family commitment. For now... Uh, let's get back to Matthew chapter 16, and would you stand with me as we read this important passage of Scripture? Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. I'm going to read through these verses, and then let's all say together, this is the Word of God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Three things I want us to see in this passage. 
The first is this. As followers of Jesus, we must acknowledge the King. This creates a, a bit of a shift in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, if you look quickly at verse 21, you'll see from, from that time. In other words, from this moment where the disciples verbally acknowledge that they believe that Jesus is the Christ, there's a shift in the ministry. And from that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Lots of stuff's already happened in the Lord's ministry. This is chapter 16 of Matthew. This is not chapter 1. Lots of things have already happened, but now the shift begins where Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the cross, and in some ways he's already beginning to march towards his impending death on the cross. But here in chapter 16, Jesus raises this all-important question about who he is. You might remember that Jesus raised this question with others. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we talked, last week, we talked about the rich young man who came to Jesus and uh, called him good teacher. And the Lord responded to him by saying, why do you call me good? Only, only God is good. And he was actually poking into this man's understanding of who Jesus was. To the rich man, Jesus was simply and only a good teacher, but... Here we find that what is crucial is for us to recognize that Jesus is so much more than that. So in broaching that subject with his disciples, he begins by saying, who do other people say that I am? Jesus, by chapter 16 of Matthew, has done all kinds of miracles. He's, he's taught all kinds of crowds. People knew. He had a reputation. People knew about him. But the question, the crucial question was, do they understand who he actually is? So the disciples give these answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. In other words, at this point, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so some people are saying, oh, well, this Jesus of Nazareth is some kind of a, a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. The Old Testament not only spoke of Elijah, the person who lived in Jewish history, but also of a second coming of Elijah. We know now that second coming of Elijah was actually John the Baptist. But some people in their confusion were saying, well, maybe Jesus is the second coming of Elijah. And others said, he's Jeremiah, a resurrected prophet from the Old Testament, or one of the other prophets. All of these, of course, were wrong. And what's important for us to realize this morning is that if you are sitting here today with a wrong understanding of who Jesus Christ is, his goal for you today through his word would be for that wrong understanding to be corrected, right? He does not want you to think wrongly about him. In fact, I would argue that it is a, an eternal fatal danger for us to go through life or leave this life without knowing and believing who Jesus really is. So it may be that there's people sitting here today who are kind of like the rich guy from last Sunday who think of Jesus as a good teacher, a great man, a man to be emulated. I, let's be like Jesus. He was so good and so kind. We can have good ideas about who Jesus is. We can think highly of him and yet miss the mark and the question is this, do I recognize that Jesus, do I acknowledge that Jesus is king? So in verse 
16, when Peter answers the Lord, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, seemingly the spokesman for the uh, disciples, or at least the one who always wanted to get the word in first, it seems, says, rightly, you are the Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? It's a Jewish word. It's a reference back to one who had been promised in the Old Testament, one who would be the fulfillment of God's promise to David to have someone sitting on his throne. And even after Israel went into exile and and there was no one sitting on the throne of Israel, there was this expectation of one who would come, God's anointed king. That's what the word Messiah or Christ means. So what Peter is saying here, and notice he doesn't say we think you might be, We hope you are. No, he just says it. You are. You are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. Or you could even understand him to simply say this. You are king. You are the king of Israel. Or you can almost hear Peter say this. You are my king. And then notice he goes on to say, you are the son of the living God. That statement, that phrase is Peter's declaration that Jesus is divine. So what does Peter understand of Jesus? He understands that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of a coming king sent from God, who not not only would be sent from God, but who would be God. And Peter is saying, that's you, Lord. We're convinced of it. Which is why up to this point, and and Peter is going to go on to say that Various places, reminding Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. Why were they willing to do that? Because they'd come to recognize who Jesus really is. And so this is the first crucial point that I want us to understand. To be followers of Christ who are all for Christ, who are genuine believers, requires that we understand who Jesus really is. Sometimes we think of him as Savior. That's not wrong. We should. He's our only hope of salvation from sin. But we also need to see him in this light. He is King. So let me ask us this morning. Is Jesus Christ King? Do we recognize him as divine, the divine Son of God? Do we recognize him as the promised King that God said would come to sit not only the throne of, on the throne of Israel, but on the throne of the whole universe. This is who Jesus is. But let me ask it in a different way. Have you acknowledged, have you submitted your life to King Jesus? I don't think there could be a more dangerous place for us to be than to be in a place where in our minds, intellectually, we could actually agree with Peter. We could actually say, yeah, I think Peter was right. I've, I've read about Jesus. I, I, I really believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. I really believe that he's God and that he's king. And then I turn to you and say, oh, so you've, you've surrendered your life to him then, right? And maybe there's some sitting here today who would say yes to the first part, no to the second. There is no more dangerous place for you to be than to be in a place where intellectually you agree with Peter that Jesus is king, but spiritually and in terms of the convictions of your heart and the choices of your life, you have not surrendered. 
To be all for Christ means first and foremost that we surrender our lives to Jesus. It's the vertical crossbeam of the cross that we've pointed to so many times. It establishes these two realities that to be a follower of Jesus means that I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. To be a follower of Jesus means that I no longer live for my glory, for my purposes, for my dreams. I live for him, to worship him and to bring him glory. That's what it means to be all for Christ. Excuse me. So it begins as it did with Peter, with acknowledging and surrendering to the kingship, the divine kingship of Jesus. Well, Peter, having answered the question correctly on behalf of all the disciples, Jesus now responds in verse 17. He says, Peter, you're blessed. He says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. It's almost like he's saying to Peter, don't think yourself clever, but understand that it is the Holy Spirit, it is God himself who's revealed this truth to you. Then he goes on to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now this little statement has created some of the most interesting debate theological debate throughout church history. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, what was he referring to? Now, the most obvious thing in the passage would be that he's referring to Peter, that he's going to build his church on Peter, because it's, it's like he's saying, and notice um, here, uh, Peter is called for Simon in verse 16. But then Peter, or sorry, Jesus confirms a name change that he'd already been given, the name Peter, which means stone. You are the stone. You could call him Rocky, I guess. You are the stone, and on this rock I will build my church. So some people say, well, it's so obvious. I mean, it's all one sentence. How could Jesus say, you are the stone, and on this rock I will build my church? But some people say, no, no, it's actually a different word. The word rock is a big rock. Uh, The word for Peter, as I've said, stone is a small rock. So when Jesus said, on this big rock, I will build my church, he couldn't have been referring to Peter, which refers to a smaller rock or stone. So Jesus must have been referring to himself. Jesus is the rock that the church is built on. And that's not unbiblical either because the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone or the chief foundation stone of the church. It's absolutely biblical to say that Jesus is the foundation or the rock that the church would be built on. So both of those things have biblical arguments, but then many today have taken a third approach. And they have said that the rock that the church would be built on is not Peter or Jesus. It's actually the confession that Peter made when he said, you are the Christ. Many today believe that this is the rock, the confession, the belief, the conviction that Jesus is the Christ. That's the rock that the church is built on. Well, you know what? That's true too. So guess what? Your teaching pastor has no idea which of the three it is. I just nod and say yes. 
because I think in a sense they're all correct. What's important to me is this, that Jesus is going to build something, in fact, is building something. We believe that we are in the period of history when Jesus is fulfilling the promise he made here. I will build my church. First thing I want us to see is whose church is it? Of course, it's his church. The word church, as we've seen in our series, means an assembly, a gathering of people. So what Jesus is saying here is that he will build his people, his assembly of those who follow him. And here's the second thing that is crucial for us this morning to understand this passage. First of all, we have to acknowledge the king, surrender to the king. And secondly, we must serve the king's people and purpose. We not only are the church, but we get the privilege of participating with Jesus in his building work. That's what we find all through the New Testament. Peter describes the church as being made up of living stones, which is you and me, stones. We get to be stones too. And we not only are the stones that make up the church, but we're also the builders who put the stones in place. The builders who help shape the stones. The builders who help grow the faith of other believers so that this whole church can be built up. So to be all for Christ is first to acknowledge Jesus as king. Secondly, it's to serve the king's people and purpose. If we're genuine followers of Jesus, we don't shrug our shoulders and think, well, you go to it, Jesus. You go build your church. And of course, it is his, and he's the ultimate worker. But we recognize that he's invited us into this process, not only to be part of the church that he's building, but to participate in the work that he does. That's why this is our mission, to help people find and follow Jesus. And everyone we meet on the right hand of the cross, our goal is to encourage them and help them grow in their faith. We want to use our spiritual gift. We want to serve God's people so that his church can be built up. We get to participate in the work that the king is doing. This becomes a great test of where our heart is at with the king. If, if you were to ask yourself, have I really acknowledged the king? Have I surrendered to the king? Well, one of the great ways to find out is number two. Have I chosen to participate in, in the work of the king? Have I submitted myself to become a servant to Jesus Christ and to his purposes in the world? And yes, have I made myself a servant of God's people? For a lot of us, it's quite pleasant. It's quite a pleasant thought to think of serving Jesus. But when it comes to serving other Christians, I've met some of those. I've been offended by some of those. I've been hurt and disappointed by some of those. I've worked hard for those people and not been acknowledged. And yet, if we understand who Jesus is, if we've surrendered our life to serving him, then we will serve his purpose and his people. As he builds his church, we will be right there with him. We will say, Jesus, build me. Make me part of this gathering of your people and, and use me to build up your people for your glory. It's the right-hand side of the cross. It's what it means to be all together for Christ. We don't think of Christianity as this island that I live on. 
I've got my ticket to heaven, I'm good, and I don't need other Christians, and I don't need the church, but we recognize, according to God's word, that we do need each other, and we are meant to be knit together as one body in Christ, and we are meant to serve that body and be served by that body, and so we must be all together for Christ. One more thing that we need to see in this passage Peter rightly confesses Jesus as king and then Jesus goes on to describe how he's going to build his church on the foundation of this rock, which of course is, it's true. It's that right declaration and understanding of Christ as king. It is Jesus as the chief cornerstone. It is the apostles as the foundation of the church according to Ephesians chapter two. But notice what he goes on to say. I will build my church and the gates of Hades, some of your versions will say hell, more literally it's the word Hades which is understood to be the realm of the dead. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now I love that expression. I mean, we can write poems and songs about that. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean that the gates of Hades will not prevail or will not overcome this church that Jesus is building? Well, I want us to see it this way. The purpose of Christ for his people who've acknowledged him as king, who have surrendered their lives to serve him and his purpose of building his church in the world today must see that the goal of this church that Christ is building is to expand the kingdom. Now notice this, we've already seen that Jesus is the Christ or king. If you look down in verse 19, you'll see Jesus begins to talk about the keys of what? Of the kingdom. So bookending this little passage, we have Jesus as the king and then we have him speaking of his kingdom And in the middle, we have this little phrase that the gates of Hades will not prevail or overcome the church. So what does it mean? It means simply what I've said here on the screen, number three. The intention of Jesus Christ is to see his kingdom expanded. I mean, think about it. These people lived in a time where they lived in towns and cities that had walls. And gates. And the purpose of the walls and gates was to keep the good people in and the bad people out. Wasn't it? We know through the history of, uh, of the Old Testament, of the history of Israel, there were times when they went up against and fought against enemy cities with walls and gates. There were times when the enemy came to Jerusalem and attempted to fight against its walls and gates. Notice it doesn't say that Hades will not prevail against the gates of the church or against the gates of God's kingdom. It doesn't say that. And yet that is the way we often think of ourselves as believers we, and, and the, the way we function often as Christians and as churches today, especially in North America, is we circle the wagons. We think of church as a comfortable place that we come to. And hopefully the the bad people will stay out there and 
we're excited to see the good people who are going to gather in here. That's not what Jesus says here about this church that he's building. He doesn't say that Hades won't prevail against the gates of the church. He says that the gates of Hades won't prevail against the church, which suggests to us that we were never meant to rally the wagons, circle the wagons, and stay here and be comfortable. The purpose of the church has always been to go, to do exactly what Jesus did when he said, I've got other towns to preach in. That's why I was sent. I've got good news to declare. I've got a kingdom to make known. Brothers and sisters, this, as we conclude our series on being all for Christ, if there's one impression, one truth that I could leave with us as a church, it's this, that God wants to expand his kingdom through us. Now, Sunday afternoon, I don't know if you're planning to go out to a restaurant for lunch today. Uh, it's kind of rainy. You're probably not planning to go for a walk, uh, uh, take the e-bike out, whatever it might be. Uh, how many would like to take a walk down to the gates of Hades today? How many would find that inviting? Even to think of something that you'd like to do this coming week. I'd like to go to the gates of Hades to see what it's like down there. What's it smell like? What's it look like? But you need to understand that to follow Jesus, we go to the places and the people that he went to and think about his ministry and think about the people whose lives he touched. And they were people who lived in the shadow of Hades. Hades, as I said, is the realm of the dead. And we who are the ones who've been made alive by our faith in Jesus Christ, we who've been resurrected just as Jesus was re resurrected, and now his spiritual life, his eternal life, throbs through our veins. And all of that power has been given to us so that we would have the privilege and joy of walking in the footsteps of Jesus and going to the dead. And through the message of the gospel and through the saving power of Jesus, seeing him bring life even in Hades. Brothers and sisters, do you want to spend the next decade, two decades, do you want to spend the rest of your life in a church where you can be comfortable? You can have messages that don't rock the boat and you can be with your friends and enjoy the style of worship and nobody, nobody pushes too hard, no one, no one challenges. Or do you want to be a part of a church that takes up the calling of Jesus and will not settle for less. And I'm tired of just being comfortable in my church experience. I want to go. I want to be part of a church that makes a difference in our world globally and in our world locally. And if that means that we come alongside people who are desperately broken, who, uh, who are living in Tent City down in Kitchener, who are struggling with drug addiction, who are living in sin, so be it. Because that's who I was before Jesus rescued me. And now I want to be part of kingdom expansion. I want to be part of a church that says, here, uh, here are we. Send us, Lord. Expand your kingdom through us. That's the kind of church I want to be part of.
I don't want to play church for the rest of my life. I want to be faithful to the king. I want the gates of Hades to shake and tremble when they hear about Wallenstein Bible Chapel. Are you with me? Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Shocking turn of events. Peter, having just declared the ultimate truth that Jesus is king, having declared his allegiance to Jesus as king, a few moments later, rebukes him, even calls him Lord, never Lord, he says. This shall never happen to you, and Jesus rightly calls Peter Satan and says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The disciples love the notion of Jesus as king. They love the notion of Jesus having a kingdom. In fact, we find not only the disciples, but others who followed Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us in one case, the crowd that he was feeding wanted to make him king by force. Because in their minds, if they'd found the Messiah, then they'd found their champion. The one who could go up against the Roman Empire and conquer. And no doubt, the one who could feed 5,000 with one boy's meal, the one who could walk on water, the one who could raise the dead, he can conquer the Romans. And Peter is reflecting that notion here. It's great, Jesus, you're king. We believe it. It's great, Jesus, you've got a kingdom. You're going to shake the very gates of Hades. We're all in. But when Jesus began to explain that the road to the throne first goes past the cross, suddenly Peter began to speak Satan's language and began to say, no, Lord, no cross for you, just a throne. And of course, Peter rebukes him, says, you don't get it. You don't get it, Peter. You're thinking about this from a human perspective. You need to see this from the mind of God. There can be no church without first there being a cross. There can be no kingdom that's filled with the populated with sinners like us unless there first is a cross of redemption where the king lays down his life for our salvation. We remember that in communion. But Jesus doesn't stop there. 
It doesn't stop by confirming his own cross. Notice verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. There could be no church. There could be no kingdom populated with sinners without first there being the cross of Jesus. But the lesson here goes one step further. And it's this. That if we really see Jesus as king, then we hear the king calling us to our cross. Which is a wonderful place to be because when we go to our cross, we come to the end of ourselves. There's no more self-reliance. There's no more self-righteousness. We come to the cross and we lay down our lives before Jesus. We surrender everything to him. And it's when we surrender all to Christ, by faith, of course, that's the faith that saves us. It's that surrendering faith that surrenders to the one, the only one who can rescue us. We don't just surrender our lives for salvation and then get back up on our feet and go our own way. We surrender our lives for now and forever to the king of all the universe. And if we want to serve the king, we want to see his kingdom built in us and through us, we want to see his kingdom expand, we want to rock the gates of Hades, and we take up our cross. Do you realize what communion is? I love communion when it's simply a opportunity to remember the suffering of Jesus. And I say simply not because it's not profound. It is. It's, everything is hinged on that. But am I able to recognize the symbolism of communion? The bread made from the flour that's, or from the, the grain that's crushed into flour, the juice, the wine that's made from the grapes crushed representing the blood of Jesus. It's also my marching orders. Did you know that? That's why Jesus said, unless the kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. That was true for Jesus, and it's true for his people. That if we want to be a church that makes a difference in our world, we have to take up our cross. Our cross doesn't save anyone. You know that, right? It's only the cross of Jesus that can save a soul. But by taking up my cross and surrendering to the king, I make myself available to be the servant and the messenger to bring good news to someone who's trapped and locked behind the gates of Hades. So we take communion today. Number one, for the, for the great reason of honoring Jesus Christ that his body broken, his death is the beginning of, of our life. But I want us, as we remember Jesus, to remember that his death became an example for us. And scripture says that we've been called to follow in his steps.
remember the Lord. Lord Jesus, we say with Peter today, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are king. I pray, Lord, that today we'd be amazed that the king became the servant who went to the cross and suffered and died. We just give you thanks and we say again, we acknowledge, Lord, that without your broken body, your shed blood, there is no hope of salvation for us. So we thank you, Jesus, for what you've done to make it possible for us to be your people, to be your church. Lord, is there anyone here today who's never trusted you, who's never surrendered their life to you for salvation? Oh, Lord, would you show them? Show them the opportunity, the invitation that you've made to them. And then, Lord, as we think of your death, I pray that you'd give us great courage to be willing to lay down our own lives for you, knowing that there is no true death for us anymore. We've found life in Christ, eternal life. No one can take that away from us. And yet, we can lay down our physical lives in order to be your servants, to take up this great privilege of going to the gates of Hades and finding the lost and the dead so that they too can find new life in Christ. Pray, Father, for our church that you would eradicate from us notions of comfort and ease, that you would make us a church that's ready to lay it all on the line to serve you and to make you known. Would you change us, Lord? We give you thanks. Amen. Jesus said to Peter, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. My prayer is that we as a church would be a church that Jesus is building, that the gates of hell should not prevail against. As we go out today and in this week, let's remember that, that Jesus is building his church and that we don't want to be people, we don't want to be a church that Jesus said, your mind is set on things of men and not on things of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word and for the reminder that Jesus Christ is King. And Father, that is the desire of our hearts. That is what we want to be individually. That's what we want to be as a church. We want to be all for Christ because he is worthy of that glory. Father, we want to be a church here in Wallenstein that together with all other churches is a global church that you build, that you are the foundation of, and that the gates of Hades will not prevail. Father, as we go into our weeks, would you revive your spirit in us? Would you revive the life that you have given us? Would you create more and more of a desire for us to be your servants willing to go where you send us and willing to do what you would have us do. Father, as we go into our weeks, would you 
build your kingdom wherever we go in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Father, would we be able to give you all the glory? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. As we go out, let's remember that we are a light that Jesus sent into the world. We are his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Have a great Sunday. See you next week.